Over the past few weeks, as this show has been released, there is a question I get asked by every reporter and friend who has checked out the show. Is this story for real? And I always give the same answer. Listen to the show to find out. Of course, that sounds like I'm skirting around the issue, which I am because I want more people to listen to the show, but I feel like that isn't enough explanation. So I add that this show is about exploring the very nature of truth in our culture. Here we have the story of a man with a front row seat to the events in Roswell after the UFO crash. He claims to have been threatened by the US government and has kept his family secrets of what they know for all these years. We've also talked about seeing the world through someone else's perspective. To look through the lens of a different point of view to understand someone better. But all that doesn't answer the question, is this story real or not? I could tell you yes or no, but would you really believe me if I did? Would it be a satisfying conclusion? If I were in your shoes, it wouldn't. I would want this show to be picked apart and cross-examined by experts before forming an opinion. So I went out looking for other voices, other perspectives if you will, that will tear this story apart piece by piece and put it back together again. And together, I think we will learn something about John's story we didn't expect to learn along the way. So, a pastor, an attorney, and a ufologist walk into a bar and proceed to deconstruct everything you thought you knew about truth. My name is Kyle Bullock. This is Crashed in Roswell, Survivors in a Misunderstood City. Before we get to the show, I want to thank every one of our listeners who have followed us on this incredible journey. I have loved putting this podcast together every second of it, and I love interacting with you. So make sure you follow us on our Facebook and Twitter pages for updates to the show, including ways that you can support the show and future endeavors, including bonus episodes that we would love to bring you in the future. You can find us on Facebook or on Twitter, where we keep up-to-date information on how you can support the show, including going to our store at CrashedInRoswell.com, where you can buy Crashed in Roswell gear. Every sale that is made through that website goes directly to helping fund and produce more of the show and get it to more listeners all across the globe. That's CrashedInRoswell.com, where you can check out our store and buy merchandise that supports this show. Okay, on to the episode. name is Dennis Ballfazer. I've been a UFO investigator for the last 30 years and doing primarily Roswell for the last 23 years. I first met Dennis at a New Year's Eve party a few years ago. He's a quiet, friendly guy who my wife and I struck up a conversation with after dinner. We found out he studied UFOs, and inwardly we rolled our eyes, like most people do. At the time, we sure didn't believe that it was a real field of study. But out of curiosity, we began to pick his brain about the Roswell incident, and he proceeded to tell us stories, backed by real research, that blew our minds. Nobody today knows more about the story of Roswell than Dennis, and nobody was more qualified to corroborate John's story than him. Let's get right to it. How many people are out there still living that you think may have a first-hand or second-hand account of the Roswell incident? 
As of my most recent research, I know of none. They're becoming hard to, to find because of their age, and uh, there's just not many of them left. What about young people? Do you think that young kids, like they would have been teenagers, that would have put them like in their 80s now, right? Something like that? Yeah, uh, as far as spouses or children, very few of them will even talk about it if they know anything. What, is that because of uh, fear, or is it because they think it's crazy, or why? I think I think most of it is due to fear, because their parents, if they were closely involved, may have been threatened. There were there were quite a few threats took place because of the incident. So I want to tell you a little bit about the story uh, that I've encountered, mm-hmm. and get your impression as an expert. I met this guy named uh, John. Um, I've gotten to know him a little bit. He's, he's old. I'm guessing he's in his eighties and he's told me some stories about how he's connected to my family. John's also told me some stories about some things that he saw that was related to the Roswell UFO conspiracy. So first off, I just want to know how likely is it that you think I may have actually met somebody who had firsthand or I guess secondhand accounts of those events in Roswell, someone that you maybe aren't aware of. You're saying John was was in his 80s when you talked to him? Yeah, he's he's in his 80s. Uh, that, meant, that meant he was a, a teenager in 47, probably. Yeah, may, maybe a little bit younger. Well, a good example of young people being involved is Jesse Mar- Major Marcel's son, Jesse Jr., who I knew really well. He actually got to handle the material that his daddy picked up at the crash site before he took it down to the base. So he was 11 years old at the time. That's old enough to have a good memory of what they saw. But John, I would not rule him out because, <laughs> like, you have to turn every rock. If you don't turn every rock over, you don't know what's under it. And 90% of the rocks you turn over have nothing. But John may be one of those that would have information that would be valid. I run into about three things when I do research with witnesses. They either lie about it, they embellish it, or they flat won't talk about it. Now, the flat won't talk about it, I can accept, because they have a reason for not talking. Maybe they were threatened, or maybe they don't want to talk about it. As far as embellishing it, I don't like that, because they're, they're taking information and making more out of it than it actually was. And the lying, that that's typical, they will do that. They'll absolutely not tell the truth. Lying, hiding the truth, or embellishing the truth. John didn't hide anything. After a while, he was forthcoming with his story. But what if he was lying? Or embellishing? How would we even know? I prodded Dennis to find out. So, let me give you a little bit more. He told me that as a kid, that his mother worked on the base as a nurse. And that she saw some things behind the scenes firsthand. Uh, I don't know exactly what she saw. He he didn't say, but I do know that he said that men came to their house and told them to basically keep their mouth shut after that night. Um, and, and he was there for that. Does that even sound plausible? Yes. And that threat coming to the house is, is extremely real. There's been other cases of threats. Uh, uh, Sheriff Wilcox had two daughters that were young girls at the time. 
I interviewed both of them before they passed away, and they had told me that they were told if their mom and dad talked about this, they'd never see him again. Sheriff Wilcox didn't run for re-election because of the incident. Wow. Yes, he, so threats, threats were real, and, and what this guy told you is very possible. So, to make a, a long story short, I think that if this guy actually has something from his mom, it may be documents or of sketches of what she saw that night at the base, maybe mm-hmm. even bodies. Do you think that there's even anything valid in thinking that, or am I getting to conspiracy theory level here? It's a tough, it's a tough call. Over the years, I've learned to look at a person and try to, to study them and see if I think they're telling me the truth or not. And there's indications that will show you that maybe they're not telling the truth. Uh, fidgety and nervous and things like that. That made me think of conversations I had had with John, especially early on. He was fidgety, nervous, quick to anger. Were those signs of fear? Or were they signs of someone cooking up a story? It doesn't help that the setting of this story, the infamous Roswell, is already shrouded in unbelievable controversy and far-fetched ideas. Sure, some of the theories out there about what crashed seem plausible, but you have to admit, they are pretty out there. Like, I mean, aliens? Is it hard as a ufologist to be studying something that some people just think is completely bananas. Yeah, um, we, classi- we classify those as debunkers or critics, and that's those are important. You need that. Uh, for me, I'm, I've got a civil engineering background, so I look at factual information best I can. And those that don't believe it, that's fine. I, I have no problem with that. So I just want to know the truth. I I don't look for disclosure in my lifetime by any means. You're young enough, maybe, in your lifetime you'll know the truth. And that's all all I'm asking for. I don't care what it was. Just tell me the truth. If it was aliens, that's that's changing the history of the world. If it's not aliens, that's fine. Just don't lie to me about what it is. I would love to know the truth as much as anybody, but the reality of the Roswell story is that we may never be sure of the truth even if it stared us in the face. We've endured so many years of cover-ups and lies that the lines of reality seem blurred. It's as though we're in it too deep to know fact from fiction. If we are to believe him, We need to establish a case for John's testimony based on what evidence we can find. And nobody builds a case better than my friend, Rick Kraft. Rick is an attorney, syndicated columnist, speaker, and a longtime Roswell local. He's also one of the most widely admired, humble, kind, and respected leaders in our community. If anybody could defend John's innocence or guilt in this podcast, it would be Rick Kraft. I'm sure as an attorney that you have heard a lot of wild stories. How do you determine if what your client is saying is fact or fiction? Well, first of all, if it's a, when, when a client tells you something, you start with the presumption that it's the truth. Um, but the idea is to identify between your communication with your own client what, what issues might be disputed at the front end. 
when you're building that case, how important is the truth ultimately? And um, is it always as simple as your client being right or wrong? The, the truth in a legal setting is uh, is determined by the trier of fact. Uh, if it's a case to a jury, then it would be the consensus uh, of uh, six or 12 jurors. Then the uh, person uh, who sits and listens, or the jury, the group, uh, they decide what the truth is um, through through hearing all the evidence. So sometimes it just comes down to a matter of opinion? Yeah, it does. Uh, oftentimes, uh, there could be an event and you could have two people or more uh, witness the same event. Uh, they see it differently. They believe what they saw is the truth. So you've got to listen to them and uh, any other eyewitnesses or any other documents uh, that might uh, help uh, determine what, what uh, actually is the truth. Is it accurate to say that eyewitness accounts are unreliable at best? Uh, well, eyewitness accounts should be the best evidence you have. Uh, especially if there's something recorded, say uh, they write a statement or something, you know, the next day or later that day, then you've got the eyewitness account, uh, and while it's fresh in that person's memory, you've got it written down. What about a story that, let's say, has happened 70 years ago, and we're hearing about it today? How reliable do you think someone with that kind of story would be? Well, if, if you've got an eyewitness uh I mean, that, that would be the best evidence, uh, but if you just have a single eyewitness, um, you know, they may have gotten it wrong, but that may be the best evidence that you can use. So, we already have some issues with John's case. First off, John is the only eyewitness to these events. There is no existing family to corroborate his story of government intimidation. It was a long, long time ago, long enough to lose track of details or have his memory of those events change. The only bit of corroborating evidence is the file John mentioned his mother kept, a file he wouldn't let me see. Suddenly, I felt like his story was built on shaky ground. What would it do to your case if your witness was caught in a lie? Um, even if it was just a, a little lie, not a huge one, but even just a small detail that they lied about? Uh, if it's done intentionally, which, which happens, uh, then their whole credibility falls. It's, it's called impeachment. You know, uh, a person's credibility goes to the witness stand with them. And if you can show that they outright lied uh, when they've been sworn under oath to tell the truth, then everything they say uh, is suspect and could, could be determined to be uncredible. Would a witness ever have a good reason for lying? Oh, sure. Uh, if it's in their own self-interest. This comment made me think. John only later started talking to me about the details of his story. He also knew I was recording this with the intention of sharing or publishing it somehow. Was he trying to get me to tell a story that he was creating? Or am I now just getting paranoid about my witness? I want to present to you a case. It's a man who knew my grandfather. I did not know my grandfather. He passed away in the 70s. This man knew my grandfather. This man was a kid in the 40s, uh, an older kid in the 40s when the Roswell crash happened. And he claims that his mother was a nurse at the base and that she saw things that night of the crash that she wasn't supposed to see. And that he even claims that he may have a document from her that reveals 
what she saw or details about that inf- about what happened, uh, but that he and his family, he and his mother were threatened by the U.S. government to keep it secret for all these years. So if this man came to you with this story, asked you to go to court with him and, you know, make the government confess to intimidation or to threatening him or whatever, uh, would you... Would you take it? Would you believe his story? I mean, where would you even begin? Uh, I'm coming up on uh, 38 years and a few months of practicing law, and I've, I've heard many stories. And you always, I would presume that this uh, gentleman was speaking the truth at the beginning, but understanding that the trier of fact, the judge or the jury, would have to make that determination. I would want to look for collaborating uh, sources uh, and try to find anything else out there which would take it off. Um, a uh, you know, kind of a he said, she said uh, type swearing match between two people. I, I'd say, sir, you mentioned the document. Um, wh- how do we get that document? Where is it? Sometimes you, you, you tell your story so many times over and over again, even if it's not true, you start believing it yourself. John may be believing a story that isn't true or events that flat out didn't happen. But if he is telling the truth, then the alleged document his mother kept about what she saw that night is the only lead we have to exonerate him. So, where is that document? After talking with Dennis and Rick, I'm left wondering, are we not in the same place we were when we started? We still don't know anything for certain, and we raised more questions than answers. And with this questioning of truth, it makes me question everything I hear. Even if we found a document, how would we know that it isn't doctored? If the government released the truth, how could we believe their story at this point? How can we be sure of what we hear anywhere? The news, social media, a friend, an official? We live in an age of spin. Everybody is telling or selling something with a bias. I mean, how can you believe me for that matter? Do you believe me? Consider this, I have been in control of the narrative this whole time. I spoke with John alone, selected what parts of the recordings I wanted you to hear, and then wrote this podcast. How can you trust me? After all, I have a vested interest in getting listeners, and I've sold advertisement for this show. That implies that I have a massive bias to the story. Considering those facts, How could you, as a listener, trust that the story I'm telling you is true or not? Are you properly unsettled yet? Congratulations. You now have a hint of what it feels like to be living in a conspiracy-filled story as big as Roswell. I did not want to leave the story here. I did not want us to question everything we hear, only to believe nothing in the end. So I reached out to my best friend since childhood and a person who has always had my back when I needed it most. Scott, we've known each other for a long time. Have I ever, in the, what, 15 years we've known each other, have I ever led you astray? Oh, man. Are, are you setting me up for... <laughs> Shut up. I can't, I can't lie, man. <laughs> no, nah, man. I mean, okay. you've always given me some interesting advice whenever I would complain about something, um, but... <laughs> Okay, just so we clarify, you as a pastor and a man of God just lied to thousands of listeners, so... Stop it. (laughs) (laughs) 
Scott no longer lives in Roswell, but he was without a doubt the most qualified person to round out this story. He works as a pastor in Lubbock, Texas now. His job is literally to take a book that has been questioned for centuries and extrapolate truth out of it for his congregation on a weekly basis. If anyone can speak to the tension of uncertainty and truth, it's Scott Hall. Let's start with the basics. What is truth? I mean, there are people out there who may look at your Bible and think that what you read is totally made-up fiction. Sure. You look at it and you see truth. So do you look at your religion and see truth because it is made up of facts or does truth mean something else in this case? Yeah, truth is it's obviously just a big, huge, gigantic question um, to try and even answer. Um, I, I think I always start in a place where saying what I, I don't believe truth is and um, there's this idea that truth is is relative that um you you come up with your truth you you are the source of your truth first of all i think that's that's dangerous if my truth says your your truth is a lie then who's really truthful um you know you there has to be i think some deep standard of truth so do you think there is value for our society to seeing truth beyond just facts and fiction absolutely i i believe you know truth kind of connects us to more more of a mystery element, uh, more of a thrill of knowing, um, kind of weighing uh, or waiting in that like pool of mystery, knowing that there's there's more out there, even though you're, you're still plunged into what you know that far. Uh, fact and fiction that can, you know, basing your life on that, it can be pretty, pretty fickle, um, in my opinion. Uh, you know, but long ago, people believed that the earth was flat. Uh, well, I guess now... So maybe this isn't as valid as I thought, but you know, like naturally they based um, their navigation, everything they thought based around this fact that the earth is flat and uh, turns out, you know, it's, it's not, but truth is kind of deeper. It's, it's multifaceted. Um, it's, you know, imagine you and me are sitting um, on a bench. You're I'm, I'm sitting on a bench, looking at a tree. You're sitting on the other side of, on a bench looking at that same tree but from an opposite direction and i say this is what i see and you say i don't see that at all i see this what i'm seeing right there doesn't invalidate what you're seeing um on that side of the tree i just haven't seen it maybe from that perspective yet and i, I kind of think of that as, as truth a uh, fact is just simply maybe stating what you see from that perspective which is great but truth is saying there's there's something deeper here it connects us i think deeper to to a to a hope um, and to a, lets us uh, kind of weigh in, in the mystery a little bit and, and be okay with that, not knowing that we can't truly comprehend everything, but that there's sometimes a need to just apprehend what, what we don't know and just kind of live in that mystery. If truth connects us to a deeper hope, what then is the deeper truth of John's story? To speak from my personal experience, the story changed the way I see other people and the community that I live in. It made me aware that there are people everywhere, like John, who are misunderstood, ignored, or looked over because of how they look, act, or come across to us. And when we don't hear their stories, as far-fetched as some of them might be, we lose a bit of our past that makes us who we are today. Perhaps there are other Johns out there, and Scott may have been one of them. Growing up in Roswell, 
what was your experience being one of the only black kids in our neighborhood? Like, did you ever feel misunderstood or ignored? Did you ever feel like people sized you up because of the color of your skin when you lived here? Yeah, you know, that... I, I like to, I guess, put a disclaimer. I, you know, I had, a, I had a great childhood growing up, and as far as, like, blatant hate crimes or anything like that, I, I didn't really experience anything violent. Um, but, yeah, naturally... Um, my experience growing up was that that's just that's just the way things were in Roswell, um, and there wasn't any ill will towards me looking pretty much different from most of my peers and most of my friends. Um, society naturally uh, labels me as black, and I'm I'm half black. I'm half black, half white. My mom's white, my dad's black, um, but naturally, when society sees me, they they say black, you know, and so, and that, that's, that's not a bad thing at all. And so, um, you know, I, I definitely felt misunderstood. Uh, people did size me up at times. I, I know the jokes, <laughs> uh, that were made, um, sometimes just to get a laugh. Uh, you know, if I could just go on and on about, um, some of those, which, you know, at the time were very hurtful, but, um, growing into my identity, that's, you know, obviously there's, there's more to me than, than simply the color of, of my skin. And so, um, I guess in short, yeah, like I, I've, I definitely felt misunderstood at times. And you may correct me a bit if I say this wrong, but it kind of sounds like because, uh, because of some of those experiences that when you talked about truth, when you were talking about your perspective, like you mentioned that it was easier for people to just shrug off whatever you had to say because they already sized up your argument before you said anything. Right, right. Yeah, you know, and I, I don't know. I, I was I would talk into my context um, or what I believed on situations, and it it wasn't passed off. As, it was kind of passed off to the side as, oh, okay, well, cool. That's I guess what you think. I think that goes um, deeper into my personality. I mean, we, you know, part of my personality on the Instagram it's a, a um, the peacemaker and the the childhood wounding that comes from that typically stems from feeling like I, I didn't have a voice um, too often as a kid um, and so I almost assimilated um, or merged um, with other people in order to try and find find my voice or um, try to gain their voice so I knew what they wanted to hear and so I could regurgitate what they wanted to hear back it was just safer to just simply um, let them hear what they wanted to hear. It was just a lot easier that way. Truth may not be relative, but perspective is. For Scott growing up, as it is for many people around the country, his perspective was not always valued. Neither was John's. Don't get me wrong, it's important to value the truth, but it is just as important to value the person in the process. To listen to someone and I mean really listen to them, might be one of the greatest ways that we can love someone. This begins to lead us full circle to where this journey started, John's unbelievable story. We've had the chance to hear his perspective, his side of the story, and the formative events in his life that shaped him into the person he became. But before I ask you whether you believe his story, let me ask you, what do you think of John as a character, as a person? So I know you've kept up with John's story uh, through the podcast. What do you think about his perspective of things? I mean, what do you think of his story 
What do you think the story means to him? What's what's the takeaway? From what I've heard from just following the story, um, John seems like um, a guy that really, like a lot of the guys I, I work with um, here at my church, we have these amazing stories. Um, if you simply just sit down with them, it kind of reminds me of John's story where it's this man who's just kind of getting by doing his thing um, under the radar and such a powerful story that he has, um, but just is very uh, misunderstood maybe. He might be the guy who comes off a little bit brash to people or rude or whatever it is. And once you actually get to hear who he is, he has uh, so much heritage to add to to the city's story, to, to Roswell's story and to um, just the region. And um, I just, you know, I think, yeah, for sure, he's he's definitely maybe a misunderstood guy. Now I gotta ask you, do you believe this story? Um, I th- I think there's truth in it. <laughs> you know, some some things are just hard hard to believe, and um, you know, I'm the first one to say you gotta take things on faith. <laughs> to give you a good old pastor cliche phrase, but um, I think that the heart of the story for sure there it is it is true. Um, um, I don't know. Um, I think I'll weigh in the mystery as I talked about a little bit earlier. What about you? Are you content to weigh in the mystery? To consider that John's story may be totally bogus? To question even my reliability as a narrator of this podcast? And in doing so, consider that perhaps the truth of this podcast is not about fact or fiction, but about the human experience about listening to, connecting with, and valuing one another. Now, when you finish this episode, you could put your device down and go about your life as always and not give it another thought. But after all this, I don't believe truth is about listening to fact and fiction in a vacuum. If it is real truth, the kind that connects you to hope, it ought to compel us to action. For me, I hope to open my eyes and my ears to those misunderstood, overlooked, and marginalized voices in the world. Their stories are too valuable to ignore, and misunderstood people are all around us, often just right outside our front door. I want my young son to grow up aware of these people, to love them and listen to them, no matter who they are or what their story is. So on one sunny Saturday afternoon, I took him by the hand and ventured out of our house on a quest to show him how we might make a difference right there in our own neighborhood, even in small ways, like helping a neighbor pull their weeds. Bubba, you want to go outside? Yeah. Hey, you see Mr. Boyd across the street? Let's go say hi to Mr. Boyd. Come on, hold my hand. So you ask me, is this story true? My car coming. No cars are coming. I can't tell you that, but is this story real? Hey, Boyd. Hey, hey Kyle. Hey. Well. Hey, Levi. What's up? That depends. So we came over here to help you. Oh, thank you. We're here to help you. Oh, fantastic. Come here and pull this one. I suppose that the best question to ask is, now that you've heard the story, you want to pull this one right here? Oh, there. Oh, thank you. What will you do 
with the story. You have been listening to season one of Crashed in Roswell. You know, the next question I get asked after, is this story true, is will there be a season two? Well, I can't say for sure yet, but I can tell you that there is definitely more to John's story to tell, including learning more about that bit of mystery metal that he gave to me. And all this truth-seeking has me wondering, how much can one man do to uncover the tangled web of truth from the government? And I am just audacious enough to launch such a one-man campaign. But before I do, let us know how you like the show by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or by posting some love for the show on our Facebook or Twitter pages. If we get enough feedback, we may just take on the biggest cover-up in American history together. Crashed in Roswell is narrated, written, and produced by me, Kyle Bullitt. Brian Hunley is to thank for the theme song. Special thanks to David Langford, Ryan Bishop, Scott Hall, Rick Kraft, and Dennis Balthaser for their contributions to this show and to this episode. And make sure you follow us on Facebook or Twitter to stay up to date with any future or bonus episodes of Crashed in Roswell. You can support this podcast and the wonderful people who contributed to it by visiting our store at crashedinroswell.com.